Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Mary Mattig. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Remember that we're at UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com where you can go to support the show and get bonus content. And boy, do you want to get that bonus content because people are absolutely loving our chat with Norman Finkelstein. <laughs> loving it. It's a hit. It's a real hit. Yeah. Very, you know, he's a polarizing figure, but in the D, in the uh, world of uh, useful idiots, he's certainly beloved. Amen. Well, if Norman is, is polarizing, then I say bring on the polarization because uh, I'm a big fan and I that was a great discussion we had with him. So I it recommend was, yeah. it for people who haven't heard it yet. And uh, you also, of course, we want to encourage you to give yourselves the gift of a exclusive membership, not just for Norman, not just for the very good interview that you're going to be hearing today, but also for Thursday Throwdown, where you get to have even more of us going over media clips. Don't deprive yourself, guys. Yes. And in this week's Thursday Throwdown, we have so much madness, including the drama surrounding the ouster of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And talk of his potential successors, which includes a guy named Donald J. Trump. Yes. The Donald, yeah. Trump is being recruited by some members of the House, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, to take over for McCarthy. And how much fun would that be? We also bring you the latest in Nazi-gate fallout and, of course, some Ukraine updates. As always, yes. And that's available, again, at UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. All righty. Shall we get going with the four basic food groups? Democrats suck. Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? You're on Democrats, Aaron. What do we got? Yes. Well, so the big drama in Washington this week has been the ouster of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy after a rebellion from a small number of Republicans. And this has sparked on the Democratic side some victory laps because Democrats like AOC are bragging about how unified the, their caucuses and how they would never do something like this. Well, if you recall back when Democrats took over after the 2020 election, there was a lot of talk about forcing the vote of House progressives using their leverage instead of just giving Nancy Pelosi the speakership to actually get something for it. And there was a big debate among progressives about this. Very well, now, divisive. Ver very divisive. And now, you know, d uh, Republicans doing this is being taken by some as a vindication of those who wanted progressives to use their leverage. Well, someone who's very happy that progressives do not use their leverage is Simone Sanders, who is a uh, former spokesperson in the Biden administration, now making the natural shift to hosting a show on MSNBC. And here she is bragging about how there are no House progressives willing to do what Republicans just did, which is use their leverage. I think Sahil had the tweet of the day, actually, where he tweeted and he underscored that Speaker Nancy Pelosi, when she was speaker, had the exact same very slim margin that Kevin McCarthy did. And for all the him and hawing that a number of progressives did do privately, nothing like this ever happened while she was Speaker of the House. And can one make, you know, we hear all the time the far right and the far left, but even the most progressive members of Congress, Simone, you can't point to anything that they're simply trying to blow up the system, cause chaos, bedlam or paralysis, which is exactly where the House is right now. That's right. If only we had House progressives willing to, instead of just hemming and hawing, you know, quietly on the margins, actually do something with their power and try to get something for it. That was the whole debate around force the vote. And I think, once again, these rebel holdouts on the Republican side have vindicated those who were calling on progressives to get something, whether it was a vote on Medicare for all or something else like, I don't know, 
a vote on a higher minimum wage, just something rather than handing over your vote to corporate Democrats. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that they see this as something positive about Democrats. Now, I do think there's a difference between I I do think given that the Republicans are kind of anti-government, that they're more happy with a government shutdown than Democrats are. So it's a little that it complicates the parallel, but it's certainly true that the Democrats are not willing to take any political risks to get stuff done. Yeah, I mean, even on the question of who will be the speaker, the fact is the right. squad, that didn't the shut entire question of the government. Yeah, they all just lined up to give right. it to Plo through without asking for anything, at least as right. far as, as as far as we can tell. Maybe there was a backroom deal cut, but but you'd think that they would brag about that if it was a good deal. Yeah. Yeah. But look, meanwhile, I mean, just to show how extreme these Republicans are, let's look at all the things that they were pushing for, because what they wanted is rather than a progressive goal like Medicare for all or higher minimum wage, they wanted cuts to social spending. So let's look at this list. This comes from Jeff Stein of The Washington Post. Great journalist. So these rebel Republicans wanted at least 30 percent cuts to things, including housing subsidies for the poor, medical research for for cancer. Social Security Administration offices, nutrition aid for pregnant moms, Head Start, EPA, and so on. So just imagine if you had progressives, rather than being sadists, like some of these Republicans are being, pushing for concessions that actually would boost even the social programs that the Republicans wanted to cut. It's just such a stark contrast. So I'm personally not praising Republicans for what they wanted. Right. But I do think... It's a stark contrast to Democrats and that they were willing to use their leverage to get right. what they wanted, even though what they got, what, what they wanted is pretty diabolical. Except, you know, I have to say, in my own personal opinion, I do think it's positive that they weren't lining up to just automatically fund the proxy war in Ukraine. Sure. Unlike uh, Democrats. Right. And speaking of which, since we're on Democrats suck, I do want to include Bernie Sanders on this because Bernie is already lining up <sighs> to voice his support for the proxy war. Here he is. So Bernie says, I look forward to seeing Congress provide in the very near future financial support for Ukraine, which is valiantly struggling against Russian aggression. Personally, I look forward to a day when Congress can provide progressives who don't line up to give financial support for a neocon proxy war. But check out Code Pink's response, because I think they had a great response to Bernie, which is simply just quoting his own words. And this is Bernie back in 2012. Let us wage a moral and political war against war itself so that we can cut military spending and use that money for human needs. Signed, Bernie. And Code Pink says, this you. And I. What think, happened to you, Bernie? What, yeah, what happened? happened? What happened? So sad. All right. What do we have for Republican suck? So for Republican suck, we have a kind of nerdy, wonky story, but I think it's important. So North Carolina's new $30 billion state budget is kind of creating a secret Republican police force. Okay, so a provision in the budget is giving a lot of power to the Legislative Committee on Government Operations, or GovOps for short, and that uh, committee is co-chaired by two Republicans, okay? And now they're able to seize, quote, any document or system of record, end quote, from anyone who works in or with state and local governments. They'll be able to enter any building or facility owned or leased by a state or non-state entity, and they're going to be able to enter without a warrant. And the public employees under investigation 
have to keep all of this communication confidential. They can't tell their supervisors and they can't even consult their lawyers. And doing so, quote, shall be grounds for disciplinary action, including dismissal. And not cooperating with these investigations will lead you to face jail time and fines up to $1,000. It's got a cool name, though, GovOps. It is a cool name. It sounds like a stealth force. It does sound like a stealth force. And it is indeed a stealth program, yeah. a stealth thing that they're implementing. It's just really scary. And uh, it you have no kind of way to defend yourself if you're being investigated. And you have there's no transparency. In fact, it criminalizes requests for transparency or attempts at transparency. Cool name, though. And I will be buying the merch if it comes out. GovOps. Yeah. 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 GovOps. Like, yeah. A, like a hoodie or something. Yeah. A mug. A mug or a hat. Yeah. Sweatband. That would be yeah. really cool. Like, yeah. You too can be a part of the GovOps. Right. We're all GovOps. So what do we got for Isn't That Weird? For Isn't That Weird, let's take a journey into the metaverse where Mark Zuckerberg is unveiling, speaking of cool new gear, some new sunglasses. The next generation of Ray-Ban Meta smart glasses. <laughs> These are the first smart glasses that are built and shipping with Meta AI in them. Starting in the US, you're gonna get this state-of-the-art AI that you can interact with hands-free wherever you go. We're gonna be issuing a free software update to the glasses that makes them multimodal. So the glasses are gonna be able to understand what you're looking at when you ask them questions. So if you wanna know what the building is that you're standing in front of, um, or if you want to translate a sign, that's in front of you to know what it's saying, um, or if you need help fixing this sad, leaky faucet. Um, you can basically just you talk to Meta AI and look at it, and it'll walk you through it step by step how to do it. You know, I'm definitely someone who could use a hand sometimes with handyman matters, but I question whether sunglasses really could help fix a faucet. First of all, what are the sunglasses going to tell you about fixing a leaky faucet? To call you a plumber. Have to, yeah, exactly. Or, or or to take a wrench and, you know, just twist it as, as much as you can. But really, I don't know how much the sunglasses can help you out there. Yeah. What if it just is like call an expert? Yeah, well, fair enough. I mean, that might save some time for yeah. people who attempt to do these things by themselves but can't do it. But. Right. Well, that is indeed weird. And I'm sure it has something about it that's uh, indeed terrible that we'll find out about soon through some leak. No, Facebook? No. No, well, no, never. No, Meta. No. Not Facebook, Aaron. Meta. Oh, sorry. Yeah. 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 Well, are you ready for Isn't That Terrible, Aaron? Trigger warning, everyone. Let's just go to the article, though, because it's one of those New York Post articles where it's just best to read from the the headlines and the, and the, and the prose because it's so good. Restaurant blasted for serving up chocolate dessert in a toilet. Apparently, this tourist dining destination never heard the old idiom about not S blank blank. T-T-I-N-G, where you eat. A restaurant in Israel has stirred up a crap storm online after serving brown ice cream. I mean, isn't that chocolate? After serving brown ice cream in a toilet-themed vessel as seen in a viral video eliciting gags across TikTok. In the wretch-worthy clip filmed at a restaurant called Gordo's in Holon, south of Tel Aviv, Israel, a server can be seen bringing a porcelain throne shaped dish to a table of diners. He then lifts up the commode lid to reveal chocolate ice cream or perhaps dulce du leche splattered around the bowl like the messy aftermath of a gastrointestinal episode. The diners unperturbed by the ice cream's 
excremental cosplay eagerly jab their spoons in and lick the toilet bowl. Okay, so let's take a look at this. I mean, what do you, Aaron, what do you think? Would you eat from that porcelain toilet bowl of a, of a vessel? I mean, if I had to, yeah, I, I don't want to, you know, shame people who are just having a good time and eating, right. even if it's in a toilet. But right. uh, this appeals to some people, and who, who am I to judge? Right. You know? Um, and it, I guess it makes you contemplate, you know, the significance we imbue in, in cutlery and plates. Right. Like, makes you think. You know, what is a plate? What is a plate? Yeah. 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 So would you be more likely or less likely to eat ice cream in a uh, toilet versus regular bowl? I say more. More, say yeah, more. right? It looks, yeah, it's, it's kind of a it's unique a, experience. It's a fun experience. It's a fun experience, yeah. yeah. I'm sure they clean the toilets very well. Oh, yeah. Right. I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. You, you know how in some like public restrooms, like there's like a little, there's, there's like a, there's like a sheet and you can yes. see people signed it that they clean it. So I'm sure they have that next to all their porcelain. Right. Oh no, uh, I didn't know. Bowl. I thought you were going to say the sheet that they put on the toilet seat, but you're—I've never seen a sign-up yeah, sheet. I mean, you know, like if if it's like a public place, like it's just to show you how clean they're keeping it. They have people like signing, like I've cleaned it at this time. I don't think so, I've ever seen one of those. Well, I, I'd expect to have that in this restaurant. Is this a Canadian and, thing? Maybe, 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 maybe Canada's that clean. Yeah, <laughs> cultural moments, the cult, uh, cultural divide. Yeah. So maybe it's not terrible. Maybe isn't that festive? Isn't that fun? Isn't that outside the box? Isn't that Very outside festive. the toilet? Yeah. Isn't that zany? Yes. Isn't that zany? For some people, it'll be isn't that terrible, but for people yeah. who are cowards. Yeah. So, th Look, so that that's this week's isn't that terrible for cowards? Yeah. But listen, I have to qualify this answer. I wouldn't eat it because it's in Israel and I respect BDS. Wow. So, you know, that, you that would get me up the hook. BDM BDS. Terrible. So Isn't that terrible indeed? Isn't, Isn't that, that terrible? terrible the pun. Indeed. The well, yeah, yeah, you're right. Exactly. You're the right. I forgot the Israel part. Right. Well, if it were somewhere else, what we need to do as activists is bring that into Palestine. I think Palestine's good. You think they can survive a settler yeah. colonialism without that toilet bowl of they, ice cream? They definitely do not want or need that culture there. They, All right. yeah, but that's definitely terrible. Yeah, but a great pun. A it great pun so with good. it. It was worth it. Yeah. All right, and that's been your four basic food groups. This week's guest is Gordon Hahn. He is an analyst who has written several books, has been covering the Ukraine crisis long before Russia invaded. And we're going to speak to him about the state of the Ukraine-Russia war. So let's go to Gordon Hahn. Gordon, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. You've been covering the Ukraine war for a very long time, long before Russia invaded. And before we get to some of that background, I'm just curious, your assessment right now, where things stand when it comes to this battle between Russia and Ukraine? Well, Russia's clearly taking, uh, gaining the, the initiative. Uh, there are all sorts of problems on the Ukrainian side. Uh, on the battlefield, it looks like the Russians are beginning to do um, sort of probes, intelligence, uh, reconnaissance, and uh, uh, combat probes along the, the entire front, ranging from Kherson to all the way up to Kupiansk in um, at least five places around Robotino, around uh, Priyutina, around Urzhainova, and uh, one more, two other places, Kupiansk, and around, I believe it's Avdivka. So, so, and what we're seeing is we're seeing... Um, uh, sending in small units and probing to find a weakness. And my guess is if they find a weakness, then there's going to be a major 
uh, counteroffensive uh, effort uh, targeting that spot. Maybe several, maybe several places. The big issue I, I'm, I'm worrying about is uh, in terms of um, any side really <laughs> gaining any kind of initiative soon. Is we're very likely, you know, we could see heavy rains begin even as soon as uh, even two weeks from now is possible, but certainly four weeks and definitely six weeks from now. Um, so how much, uh, even if the offensive started today, how much can be gained in um, six weeks before things get bogged down? If you, you read a lot of commentary and people talk about, you know, when there's discussion by the Ukrainians of uh, some continuation of the failed counteroffensive into the future, into the fall, then immediately people bring up, you know, the rains and the muds, the, the Rasputitsa and so forth. And uh, and they talk about that on the Ukrainian side, but it works on the Russian side too, right? I mean, we could very well see a stalemate until things get real cold and the ground freezes, and then the Russians, I think, will go on a counteroffensive. Offensive. And in some ways, that might be the wiser thing to do because they can then uh, bring in more reinforcements, bring in more supplies, and uh, over the next, say, six or eight weeks, and then when uh, it's time to move, they'll be that much more uh, potent. Of course, the Ukrainians can do the same thing, but the Ukrainian supply problems are are uh, many. One being that <laughs> source of supplies are, are being are being uh, are drying up, and the other is that whenever they try to bring supplies and new reinforcements in terms of personnel up to the front or gather them in a single place, the Russians usually spot them ahead of time and destroy at least part of the convoy on the way to the your meeting place. So it's, it's that still with the place so that any kind of um, delay in either counteroffensive, right, would be uh, <clears throat> to the Russians advantage because they can supply much more efficiently. And if Russia launches a counteroffensive, as you say, they might, how far do you think they would go? They already control about 20% of Ukrainian territory. Only mm -hmm. about 500 square miles has changed hands so far this year during your, during Ukraine's counteroffensive. But meanwhile, Russia's laid claim to territory that it doesn't currently control. So mm -hmm. how far do you think they would go if they launch an offensive in the coming months? Well, if you go by the recent statements from two, two from Lavrov, Foreign Minister Lavrov, and one from Shoigu, Defense Minister Shoigu, and another one from Medvedev, and I think there was another one, uh, Volodin, the Speaker of the Duma. Um, they're all talking now about, you know, if Russia, if uh, Ukraine doesn't want to capitulate, that... Um, There'll be uh, the, there'll be the destruction of the Ukrainian state. Uh, that suggests that they would be even even be willing to go beyond the Dnieper, but I don't think they can accomplish uh, even getting to the Dnieper, you know, by the end of uh, winter. That's not going to be an easy thing to do. Uh, the Ukrainians will be you know throwing their last forces in, and probably the West will scrape up the bottom of the barrel uh, of things as the NATO, a recent NATO statement today was made that they can see the bottom of the barrel in terms of weapons supplies to Ukraine. You know, I don't think they could do it by the, uh, say, the end of by, by spring, and then you would have another uh, uh, little bit of a Rasputitsa even then, you know, the little mud and rain and so forth. So, um, I don't see them uh, getting much beyond the Dnieper going beyond the Dnieper at all before next uh, winter, uh, the end of, like, excuse me, the end of winter, if at all. And I think they'll have a hard time getting to the Dnieper by the end of winter. I mean, uh, the, some of the Ukrainian forces are fighting, uh, you know, very toughly, although there's an increase of, supposedly in the number of surrenders. So it's not going to be an easy job, not going to be an easy job at all.
Um, they'll certainly want to take back anything that's left of Luhansk and Donetsk and probably uh, Kherson and uh, Zaporozhye Oblast because according to the constitution, the, the uh, entire territory of those oblasts as they existed in the Ukrainian constitution are part of Russia. So they need to take those entire, uh, cover those entire uh, oblasts. Who knows, maybe they would, uh, be, if they accomplish that, then they would begin, they would take some kind of a pause if it was militarily convenient and issue one last series of threats, warnings, and ultimatums to Kiev and then move towards the Dnieper. Uh, that team seems to be the way uh, Putin tends to operate because I don't think he's enjoying this. <laughs> Contrary to what the Western propagandists would tell you, I don't think he needs this war and doesn't like it, And but he feels he was forced to do it. When you say that he feels he was forced to do it, what do you think he could have done if there was anything else uh, in the situation in, in which he found himself? Mm-hmm. I think he, I, I would have would have recommended uh, simply because war is just a terrible thing as yeah, we're seeing now. And uh, I can see why he made he did what he did, but I think he could have held off, assuming that the claims that the the Ukrainians were about to attack Donbass are not true. Um, and I I don't have uh, I'm I'm not sure I don't have full surety that those claims are um, um true. I don't doubt that they very well could be true. Uh, given the way the Ukrainians tend to behave and the way the West sort of eggs them on. I don't doubt that, but I don't see conclusive evidence that that's the case. So we assume that Ukraine wasn't about to engage in a full-scale attack on uh, Donbass, uh, Luhansk, and, uh, and uh, Donetsk. Um, I think what what uh, what he what Putin could have done is he could have escalated the situation. In other words, I know it's hard to keep 100,000 troops in the field on the along the Ukrainian border for a long time. But one thing he could have done is simply gone in and seized the territory uh, of the uh, uh, declared the at the time. Remember, they weren't independent. Luhansk and Donetsk were only self-declared. And he could have taken those uh, just the territories that Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics had claimed and occupied and then stopped and said, OK, are you ready now to talk? Are you listening to us now? As he likes to sometimes uh, say. Um, that would be would have been one option. Option instead of going into Kiev. Now, my my take on the Kiev attack was that he was he was hoping that either the Zelensky regime would run, or he could force him into talks, which he did, and then the West basically forced Zelensky to back off. So that kind of worked, but you know it was a high risk gamble. If it didn't work, then he's 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 bogged down in a major war because he's he's gone beyond the territories that Ukraine had already lost and more or less was used to not having control of. Um, the other things he could have done, for example, is put, uh, you know, 30 or 40,000 troops in Belarus along the northern border, could have put some nuclear weapons in Kaliningrad, could have uh, moved troops up to the uh, all along the border of Ukraine, could have massed additional troops and uh, offensive rockets and so forth in Crimea. In other words, you know, I thought I prefer for a politician to make threats as long as he's willing to follow through on the threats. And when it comes to the decision of war and violence, then actually engaging in the violence at first uh, step. You know, this is all, you know, we have to keep in mind at the same time that, you know, Ukraine was carrying on a, a low intensity uh, war against the Donbass republics for eight years. And there were civilian casualties at the time. You know, the civilian, ca civilian casualties in Donetsk and Lugansk weren't, weren't all that high. So, 
you know, from, I suppose, uh, you know, <laughs> hate to make judgments like this, but, you know, from a military political standpoint, um, you know, they were tolerable. But, you know, it's a it's a tough call. My, my, my I would have recommended he did, did the type of things that I, that I just went through. And then, you know, given a month or two, um, he could have, you know, said, okay, this is it. You know, something isn't done. We're going to take, think of whatever phrase you want to put <laughs> that sounds threatening enough. And then done what, and then could have done what he eventually ended up doing. Yeah, Gordon. So I agree with you that there's not conclusive evidence that Ukraine in February 2022 was going to launch this major assault on the Donbass. But let me put you the evidence that is marshaled to support that argument that actually an, mm -hmm. an offensive was coming because there is some evidence. It's not yep. overwhelming. It's not conclusive, but I do think that's it's something. So there is the increase in shelling of the Donbass by Ukraine in the mm -hmm. days leading up to Russia's invasion, which did dramatically escalate. If you look at the mm -hmm. figures from the OSCE, then mm -hmm. you have, meanwhile, Zelensky's government refusing to even speak to the leadership of the Donbass rebels in those crucial right. talks right before Russia's invasion, wouldn't even mm -hmm. speak to them, mm -hmm. which if you can't speak to the rebels, how are you possibly going to resolve the conflict? And you had increasing talk from the Zelensky government of Ukraine reacquiring those territories, right. including by force. And you also had uh, Zelensky four days before. Uh, we don't know whether it was before the decision, but I believe it was four days before the actual invasion, uh, talking about giving up the Minsk, uh, getting out of the Minsk Accords, which was uh, not the Minsk Accords, the uh, Budapest Mem Memorandum, which was code for uh, reconsidering uh, acquiring nuclear weapons right. of some sort again, yeah. attempting. Yeah. Um, about the the OSC, um, the uptick, the serious uptick in um, attacks uh, let, begun by the Ukrainian side. I wrote about that, and it's it's all in OSC reports. Absolutely true. Uh, in terms of not talking to the the Donetsk and Lugansk leadership, they hadn't they hadn't done that for eight years. You know, they they refused, and that of course was a violation of the Minsk Agreement. One of the violations that also was a reason for Putin. To invade, so yeah, all those things are our factors, right? Yeah, absolutely. And let me ask you a question about Putin. Why do you think Putin didn't make this an international issue before he invaded? So, for example, there was some talk for a while about calling for peacekeepers, but Russia, as far mm -hmm. as I know, sort of abandoned that without much fanfare. Mm -hmm. But why do mm -hmm. you think Russia wasn't trying to make this more of a global issue if mm -hmm. the threat to them is what prompted them to ultimately invade? Mm -hmm. The threat to the people of the Donbas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, first, it's the things we just talked about in the previous uh, section, right? That uh, there was a sense that things were re reaching a certain a, a sort of head, and then um, the other other problem is that uh, the West was gradually, very gradually, turning NATO, uh, turning Ukraine into a de facto um, NATO member by uh, training and supplying heavily the army. Um, there's also one other thing that we left out from the answers the answers we gave to the previous question. Is that the uh, Arestovich, uh, before I believe was before he um, left his position as an advisor to Zelensky, might have been after him, I can't remember. He stated that um, Ukraine had had moved up 60,000 troops near the Donbass border in the weeks right. before right. the uh, yeah. attack. And Russia accused Ukraine of that in December of 2021. Right. And Ukraine didn't really give a response to that, as far as I remember. Yeah. Right. So all those, I mean, are 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 good enough, are are sufficient reasons for him to have raised the the question, you know. And of course, they've been raising this for eight years now. And then when you you know you add in the 
the uh, NATO involvement in Ukraine, the uptick in fighting, the, the uh, really kind of uh, not serious attention given to Putin's uh, proposals for talks, uh, which was a way to, you know, avoid hopefully a, a military confrontation, uh, an invasion. You know, it, 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 it becomes, e, from his point of view, looking at that lay of the land, um, that it's time to go. One can one can understand the, the decision, even if, as I said earlier, I would have preferred to see more threats uh, before he actually went. But and and seen and then seen the West uh, be willing to discuss matters and hopefully some some kind of compromise. But uh, our political leaders don't seem to be in the mood for compromises anymore. What is it? Obviously, I think the three of us would agree that the West did everything it could to sabotage a resolution to this uh, conflict. Mm -hmm. What exactly, though, are they trying to get when they say they want to bleed Russia? Mm -hmm. What are the kind of geopolitical economic goals Mm -hmm. specifically? Mm -hmm. Well, the main goal is to be able to, is to they, they, the the point of this more of this war, in my view, is to protect the right of NATO to expand eternally, where it goes. If it, if Russia can stop the expansion of uh, NATO to Ukraine, uh, then that leaves very little room for maneuver uh, elsewhere, right? Because if they couldn't manage to do it in the extension of the West and Eastern Europe, uh, they're hardly going to be able to do that in. Um, places like Asia, where they're now opening up an office in Japan, and they're going to cooperate with AUKUS and so forth and so on. Uh, so, one issue, of course, is one way would be to they possibly could expand into Moldova without being able to move into Ukraine, and conceivably, you know, they could try Georgia again, I suppose. But you know, Ukraine's the big prize, and so so if you look at it just from that standpoint. You know, NATO expansion is is the key thing, but NATO ex- expansion could very well be be the wedge, right? Because NATO expansion is a foot in the door to every country in terms of um, cultural influence, in terms of economic influence. It's not just you know transferring the local military into uh, NATO operational standards and so forth and so on, and the nature of civil military relations and. So supposed certain level of uh, re- uh, Republican political system, small R. Uh, you know, it's it's getting your door, getting your foot in the door economically and and culturally, and then from there it can expand. And plus, we get into what um, I was talking to Katie about before we went on the air: the whole EU, EU expansion, right? That the EU expansion usually comes with this. It usually comes eight years before a country becomes a NATO, gets a offer to join um, NATO. Uh, gets a map, a membership, a membership action plan. Forgot what the the acronym means, okay. right? So, uh, EU is another uh, foot in the door for economic expansion, uh, and it's all part of the you know Western globalization effort to uh, fully consolidate uh, the post-Soviet states and the post-communist states into uh, the Western uh, sphere of influence. And anybody should have understood that. Uh, Russia was not going to tolerate that, no matter um, how weak a position it was in. Even Yeltsin, during the in the late 1990s, spoke out against NATO expansion and said he, this is a sort of near quote to something uh, along the lines of, one gets the feeling one is trying to run the world from a single political center, you know, having in view 
having a new Accurate. Washington, D.C. So that's Yeltsin, who was supposedly the uh, the big Democrat, who pro-American, pro-Westernization, pro-West, even he. And of course, we know from transcripts that he you know, was practically on his knees to Clinton saying, please don't take any of the post-Soviet states into NATO because it's going to just kill us. And even from the start in the early 90s, 93, 94, when they first started talking about NATO expansion, immediately in the Duma, there formed a faction uh, called anti-NATO in the Duma. And Foreign Minister Kozarev uh, openly stated that, uh, you know, if NATO expands, it's going to under, under, undermine the Democrats in Russia. And that means uh, a threat to democratization in Russia. And they just went ahead anyway. What do you have to say to to the kind of typical arguments we hear from mm -hmm. Western media uh, or members of uh, both media and political elites who make a couple of arguments? One, uh, Ukraine has the right to defend itself. Ukraine mm -hmm. has the right to join NATO. Uh, if we capitulate now, Putin's going to go into the rest of Europe. This is like um, mm -hmm. Munich. Mm -hmm. All those that that kind of suite of arguments. <laughs> yeah, well, this is, you know, pat, patently absurd. I mean, for example, just one small example, if we go back to the war in Georgia in 2008, uh, the Georgian army had been defeated. The Russian army was 60 miles within Tbilisi, within the uh, within range of Tbilisi, the capital. Why didn't they take Tbilisi? Because they had a specific task. The specific task was to stop Saakashvili's invasion of South Ossetia and his planned invasion of Abkhazia afterwards. Very limited military project that had to do with maintaining Russian prestige because South Ossetia and Abkhazia, especially South Ossetia, have been long-term allies. Uh, the Ossetians, ethnic group, the Ossetians have been long-term allies of Russia going back uh, hundreds of years because they're an Orthodox uh, Caucasian um, minority. Their South Ossetia was in Georgia. You had a North Ossetia inside Russia. So if uh, Saakashvili, which he did, he attacked South Ossetia, the ne next logical step would be for North Ossetians to start going into South Ossetia to fight against the Georgians. So you would have people from um, southern Russia, from the North Ossetian Republic, going into Russia, uh, going into Georgia to fight the, the Georgians and defend their fellow Ossetians. The Abkhazians, they are a nationality that is associated with three nation Muslim nationalities in the North Caucasus where Russia already had a jihadi uh, movement going on. Um, and those three nationalities, not they're not the Chechens the, uh, or the uh, English or the Dagestanis, they're the Kabardines, the Adiges, and the uh, uh, Cherkes are all brother nations to the ethnic Abkhaz in Georgia. So you would have had the same phenomenon, uh, phenomenon occurring in Abkhazia. You would have, have, would have had... Um, people from north from the North Caucasus in Russia going into Abkhazia to fight against the Georgians. Uh, this would create chaos along Russia's border. So how was not to mention that Russia had already pledged its prestige to these two regions by defending them against Georgian nationalists in the 1990s. So how was it that Russia could simply sit by and let that happen? Couldn't do it. Absolutely couldn't do it. Then you add in the fact that NATO was deeply involved. The Georgian situation in many ways is a mirror <laughs> of the yeah. situation in Ukraine, right? You had you had breakaway regions. You had the United States getting deeply involved in the Georgian military. Remember the, the train and equip, equip program with Georgia? Um, so you had the 
uh, you know, the westernization of the Georgian military, you had the breakaway regions, then you have an attack <laughs> on those breakaway regions by the Georgian leadership. And it all mirrors what happened essentially in Ukraine. And what was the result? The result was the Russians invaded Georgia. So then they repeated the same thing in Ukraine. And guess what? Big surprise. <laughs> the Russians invaded Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, and Gordon, you know, there's one more parallel that I think is important here. As far as I know, inside the Bush administration at the time, there was even a split. You had people like Dick Cheney who were encouraging Shakespeare to attack and suggesting to him that the U.S. would have his mm -hmm. back. Mm -hmm. Right. Other people said the Bush administration were not going along with that, uh -huh. just as other people mm -hmm. in the Bush administration were opposed to Bush pushing through this NATO pledge to Ukraine right. and to Georgia. But Bush overruled them. And in the yeah. case of Georgia, Cheney success succeeded in encouraging Shakespeare to launch this attack. And then, of mm -hmm. course, Georgia ended up losing big. And similarly, mm -hmm. fast forward to the Obama administration. You had Dick Cheney's former aide, Victoria Nuland. Right. who is uh, now working for Obama and deeply opposed to Obama's own policy of not wanting to further inflame the proxy war because right. he realized what he had started and he didn't want to send more weapons. And Newland basically undermined that at every turn. She undermined the Minsk Accords. And finally, right. under Biden, she picked up where she right. left off along with Tony Blinken and Sullivan and Biden himself. So right. there are so many parallels to these two cases. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. Well, that was very informative. That was great. And for more, Gordon's website is GordonHahn.com. That's Gordon, H-A-H-N, which we will link to in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget to become members to catch the rest of that Gordon Hahn interview, as well as Thursday Throwdown. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 